Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat, because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call, and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I My name is Noah Chalaya. So, on our online forums, that's reddit.com slash r slash Show. I think asknoahshow.reddit.com works too. Um, I have gone through the Reddit. I've gone through the YouTube comments. Emails, they all seem to be hovering around one thing lately. Now... I've been pretty straightforward with you guys since day one. You, the listener, are in control of the content. It's such a core belief to me. It's such a founding belief of this show that it's been forever baked into the intro. Because once you do an intro, then you can never change it. That's one of the unwritten rules of uh, broadcasting. But what you guys talk about with me on Telegram chat, on the online forums, even in the comments in YouTube, that's what I use to write the next show. Noah, what does any of this have to do with today's show? It, everything. It has everything to do with today's show because my gut tells me that we have been too heavy in the server arena lately and that we need to get back to more basic concepts, more desktop stuff, more Linux desktop. And if I were planning the show by myself, if I were going just by what I wanted to talk about here, that's what we'd be talking about today because I enjoy the Linux desktop. I enjoy talking about the Linux desktop. I enjoy talking to home users. I even enjoy helping home users. I don't necessarily like working inside of homes. I certainly don't like running Cat5 cable. And as a little aside, I'll tell you why. In a business environment, when you're making a network drop and you've got a ceiling that's maybe, I don't know, 10 feet or something, you just tell the business owner, I'm gonna cut a little hole up here, I'm gonna fish the wire down, then I'm gonna cut a hole at the bottom and I'll pull it through and I'll put caps on the holes. Most businesses, sure, no problem. Just cap it up when you're done. Home users, you, you, you're going to cut a hole in my wall? And I lived that last week, let me tell you. But if I were planning a show by myself, that's what we'd be talking about. We'd be talking about the Linux desktop. And I enjoy learning about the Linux desktop. I enjoy when I do a show and it teaches me something. When I did the C file segment, I learned a lot about file syncing. I learned what, how, how, uh, how data is encrypted and then sent. And I learned about the file process. And subsequently, I improved not only my personal life, but I was able to improve the lives of everyone that works for me at AltaSpeed. So I particularly enjoy when I'm able to talk about something that I then can implement. And I know that we all like to dream about these businesses. And in these, in these, uh, in these imaginary businesses, they all have Quake running in the drop-down terminal. They have the best GNOME extensions. They have the best GNOME themes. They're users. They, they all, they sit around at night, around a campfire, drinking beer, and they talk about how great their computer at work is because they have the dash to dock extension or the ping indicator and how much better it is than everywhere else. But, but the truth is, we all know this if we're honest with ourselves, in the business world, the vast majority of people that are using Linux on desktops it's just the base OS and maybe a few pieces of requisite software that they need to get their job done. Because the reality is, aside from purpose-built software, the majority of the work being done on the computer system, regardless of operating system, is office work. It's document editing, it's spreadsheets, and it's email. The majority of the really cool tweaking actually occurs on the server, happens on the back end. Now, the last two weeks have been pretty server intensive, and so my inclination was to go back to my beloved Linux desktop this week. But you, the listener, have spoke up. You guys have asked this question over and over and over again, and so today we are going to dive into this. And that question is, how do we at AltaSpeed Technologies implement Linux computers to function 
as Windows computers or would function as Windows computers on an Active Directory system. How do we manage that? Well, obviously, a cutting-edge company like AltaSpeed Technologies is not going to have templated solutions. We don't just have one solution that we open up and bake in for everyone. We look at every client's individual needs. We sit down with them. We meet with them. We evaluate where we are going to have perceived pain points. And then, and only then, do we pair them with an open source solution that provides them with cost savings without sacrificing quality. So let's dig into this a little bit. Let's start with worst case scenario. You have an all window shop and they're using all Windows computers. The servers are Windows, the desktops are Windows, everything is Windows. What would we do? Well, the first step is obviously to have a meeting in which we let the client know that they're crazy. No, I'm just kidding. We sit down, we have a meeting with the client, and in no, no uncertain terms, we tell them that as their chosen IT provider, in order to efficiently provide them with the best IT service, we're going to have to make some infrastructure changes. You want to talk about this kind of stuff ahead of time. Do not take the rest of this episode and go throwing these solutions into production without talking to whoever it is you're working for, or you're likely to wind up out of a job. Most places are fairly tolerant of infrastructure changes, particularly if you can make a case that it's going to affect their bottom line. It's going to save them money. And in this case, I can almost assure you that it will. Once we have advertised to the, once we've talked to the client and we have advised them that this is what we're going to do, then the next thing that we are going to do is look at what we are going to fix first. Well, the first thing that we look at is workstations crash. They get reimaged, and it's rarely a huge deal. Most people, most businesses, are pretty tolerant of the fact that their workstations go down from time to time. So if we're going to swap something out, we'll do... It, it, the, the, the workstation is not necessarily where we... Uh, where we want to start. We don't want to swap the workstation out. We'll start with the most critical piece of infrastructure, because that's always a great idea, which is the domain controller. And I joke, but the reason that we always start with, if I had my choice between starting with the workstations or the domain controller is, if we can get the domain controller to a stable environment, if we can get the domain controller to something where we're controlling that, and we know that that is the most solid piece of the network, the workstations, one or two workstations go down, it's not the end of the world. We'll reimage them and bring them back up. So, what is the go-to solution for domain controller on Linux? Well, my go-to solution in these cases is RAS-DC. That's R-A-Z-D-C. Now, RAS-DC is an Active Directory domain controller built on CentOS and Samba 4. Now, incidentally, the founder of the project is a guy named Brian. And Brian happens to live in good old Grand Forks, North Dakota. So I reached out to Brian, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I, 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 at the time, I was going through all of these hacks, trying to get a domain controller running on Linux, and I came across RASDC, and I reached out to Brian. A few days later, I found myself sitting in Starbucks. I will tell you that neither of us had a MacBook in front of us. We were drinking coffee and talked about Linux to the point that both of us literally had to get back to life. He had to do things with his kids. I had to go pick my kids up from school. Because you see, Brian is one of those guys that is in the shadows because of work and family, but the truth is, he's one of the people that takes the Linux desktop to the next level, because he is taking Linux to a point where I can go on the air and tell you that it's the best operating system out there, full stop. Even when it comes to replacing Windows at things that Windows was invented to do, like be a domain controller. RASDC takes what used to be a total pain and makes it silky smooth. Now, full disclaimer, the project is relatively new. Now, the Samba implementation is totally baked and ready to go for production. So, and I've been using the Samba project, the, the, the features of Samba that allow you to use it as an after directory controller for a long time. But I get the RASDC basically layers, very nice graphical interface and stuff on top of that. I actually have been using RASDC in production for a little over a year now without any issues. So if you have to support a Windows environment and you want to do it on Linux, 
RASDC is a great place to go. Now, if you are doing like a massive, massive deployment and you're going to have to sit down in meetings and justify everything over and over again and provide a bunch of resources, you might consider looking at just plain old Samba 4, not necessarily with RASDC on top of it, because like I said, it's, I don't know that the project is, is really build and, and, um, advertised as a, as a, as a completed project. I mean, it is completed, but it's an alpha stage. Now, are all of the policy controls, profile redirection, is all of that good stuff going to be included? No. At the end of the day, it's not a Windows server. It's RASDC running on top of Linux. But then again, you won't be restarting your server every month because it's not a Windows server. It's RASDC running on, side, uh, uh, running on top of Linux. It's definitely a solution that I've used and are definitely worth looking at. And a huge thank you to Brian for taking his talents and his time which he could have probably sold for a lot of money and giving them away to the open source community in the way of the RASDC project. Brian also has a lot of other projects that he has going on. Um, he shared a couple of them with me and I'm not sure if they're uh, eligible to put on the air, but suffice to say that he is a very great guy and I, I look forward to uh, getting to know him better in the future. And if you want to le learn more about this project or support the project, we'll have a link in the show notes. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. We're talking about Linux and what it can do for you on your server and how you can replace your Windows box and Active Directory. Let's go to the phones here. Who do we have here? We have, do, 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 who do we have? We have John, California. Hi, John. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Hi, how can we help? Uh, okay. uh, so this is a bit of an advanced question. Uh, do you know of a Linux replacement for ChromaCam? It's a background removal software. Get, um, could you elaborate just a I think I understand what you're saying. Are you talking about like, uh, like Chroma Key, basically? Oh, yeah, that's it. Sorry, I th sorry, I think sorry, I think I got the name wrong. Uh, but yeah, Chroma Key. Okay. Well, no, no, no. It's uh, it's Chroma Cam. Uh, so essentially, it uh, does automatic backward, uh, background filtering. So you don't need a green screen in the background, but it, but it's able to, but it's able to capture your face. So it has some sort of algorithm that figures out what your face is and then cuts everything else away. Yeah, the so yeah the software is a .NET application called ChromoCam, and I was wondering I was wondering if you knew of any alternatives on Linux. Hmm. Uh, well, here I don't. I've never heard of such software. To be honest with you, and it's actually that's very impressive because the ability for software to not only detect a a face that's one thing to say this is the object I'm going to focus on that's easy enough for a computer to do. But to be able to track that face, to track that that movement, and then the the parts that are associated, so like my shoulders or whatever with it, and then cut out everything else, that's a very difficult thing for uh, for a computer to do. So I'm actually I'm really impressed that there's software out there that can do it. And no, I don't know of anything that's on Linux that is capable of doing something to that level. That said, green screens are not terribly expensive. I mean, you can buy a a, a simple green screen setup for thirty dollars on Amazon. Um, and then there's more advanced ways to do it where you can actually take like a, uh, like a reflective background and shine a green light on that reflective background. And that will eliminate the need for, uh, for proper lighting. Because I'll tell you, the real pain in any green screen setup 100% of the time is even lighting. Because basically, you need the shade of green yeah. to, be, to be exact, right? So if you get shadows, the shadow is going to have a slightly darker shade of green than the rest of the screen, and that throws off your whole your whole keying aspect. So the more consistent green you can get, and then the further away from green everything ahead of it can be, the better. So if we can get that green to fall out of focus, that's some people do that. Other people, if you know if it's a if it's a large uh, if it's a large production place, what they'll do is they actually have paint that goes on the walls that's a specific shade of green, and then they light the green separately and then just put a you know a key light, a fill light on on the talent, and those are usually their barn door closed down, you know, real far and they try to spill as little light onto the green screen as possible. Is that a workable option for you? Or? Well, I'm just I'm kind of space limited. Um, also, the also the Chromo can itself is very, is very convenient. Uh, yeah. and, 
uh, like subtle things such as uh, some li- some lighting can really throw off the green screen. Whereas in this case, I can just sit sit down and turn on all the lights. So it's it so it's a it's, it's a really convenient matter. Oh yeah, yeah. The um, you know, uh, Rakai in the chat room suggests: Have you ever tried running the application in Wine? I assume it's a Windows application. No, I didn't think it would work. I, it uses a, I believe it uses a virtual driver. Uh, you select Chromocam and Webcam on there, uh, where the Webcam also shows up. So I didn't think it would work. Holy cow! You're telling me this is. You're telling me the software works off of a webcam. Um, it works with. Well, it works with a web. It works with a webcam. So you're t- the, the image that it's uh, captured. The, the image that it's doing all this calculation off of. The the source image is from like a store bought webcam. It's from the Logitech uh, uh, C920, C930, yeah. X. Okay, sure. Wow, yeah, I, I, man, I got to tell you, um, you know, uh, just I, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you other than to just uh, to use a green screen. If you're space limited, you know, if you own the place, obviously you could, you know, you could use the, the paint. Otherwise. Um, I th- you might look into some of those lighted solutions where you have uh, just a reflective thing because you can you can obviously make that very small and then just shine the uh, the green light onto it and reflect down. But I got to tell you that is an impressive piece of software that because the, the lower the resolution or the less quality the images, the harder it is for the computer to make that calculation. I'd be interested to see if anyone has any uh, any images after that's been processed after it actually takes the face out. I'd be really interested to see that because I. Uh, I, it's it's interesting that it would be able to do that very well, trying to track the face. I think that's pretty incredible. Gary is calling from Illinois. And Gary, I got to be honest with you. I have a feeling this is going to be two for two. I'm not going to know the answer to this question, but I'm going to take it anyway because uh, because I want to hear this. Hi, Gary. How are you? Awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad to be talking to you. Yeah, me too. This is, this is an interesting problem you have here. Give me this error now. You're trying to install Linux. Yeah, I am. I, I bought a... Uh Brand new uh, E460 Cabby Lake uh, Lenovo uh, ThinkPad, and of course I want to get win- get rid of Windows off of it. And I've been trying to install uh, a couple of different distros uh, on it. That keep on getting the error of no COM32 file found. Now I've been researching. And I found out. I think I found out half the answer, but I, I, I can't figure out the solution yet. And um, from what, I am with, from what I've been reading, it's because it's a Cabulate processor. And normally what I've been using to burn a, a, a Linux thumb drive has been stuff like uh, UNet booting or something else along that line. And from, my, from what I have read, that UNet booting or these other type of uh, things put a uh, part of their own boot files on there. And uh, so now I was wondering... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of new to Linux. I mean, a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't really have a big use for it, even though it's my daily driver. So, I'm, but I don't really do a lot at the command line. Sure. But um, how do I make a, a, a bootable thumb drive from uh, from my old Linux computer, which actually right now has uh, uh, Ubuntu Mate on there? And I, I've heard you and uh, Chris talk about the DD command. And I was wondering, is that something yep. I can use? Yep, sure is. To make a bootable thumb drive that... Yep, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll go over both. So the first is, if you if you just called me up and you said, how do I put a distro on a, on a drive? So that was your question. My answer to you would be a program called Etcher.io. And Etcher.io, to the best of my knowledge, runs on Windows, runs on Mac, runs on Linux. And the great thing is, it's app image. So... For those of you that don't know what that means, it, it basically means you don't have to worry about having a Debian.dev for your Debian distro or your Ubuntu distro and a .rpm for your Fedora and your CentOS distro. It just, you literally download the file, you double click on the file and the file runs. It's that simple. It's actually, it's really incredible. And it was the first time I'd ever used a universal packaging system where I was like, huh, this has really been missing from Linux for a long time, and I know that there are a bazillion people that have a million reasons why they don't want universal packaging, but I'm just telling you, this is really cool. Um, but so, putting that aside, Etcher.io, that's a great way to do it. That's the simplest way to do it. Now, if you want to be a command line ninja, and you're curious of what the command line structure is, the DD command is basically a block writing uh, utility. So basically, just it takes data and stupidly writes it to 
to whatever you tell it to write. It's not paying attention to what it's doing. You following me? So what that yes. that's both good and bad because it's good because it means that we can just take an image like an ISO and write it to a, you know, a USB flash drive. It's bad because it also means that I could potentially be writing that image to my boot drive and I, I would not know. So you want to be real careful. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to issue a command df uh, and you can do df tac h if you wanted to, if you wanted to get it in human readable format. But basically what you're doing is you're looking for all of the drives in the system and you're looking at their, I usually look at their capacity. So you go down through and you say, okay, dev slash SDA and that's 128 gigs. That was, that's probably my drive. That's probably my SSD, right? And then you look a little further and you, yeah. you look a little further down and you say, uh, uh, you know, slash dev slash SDB is a four terabyte drive. Okay, well, that's where I store all my data. Then you look a little further. Slash dev slash SDC. Well, that's an eight gigabyte drive. Okay, that's probably the flash drive. So the DD command, we'll have the exact syntax for you in the show notes, but it's DD space, and then you're going to specify the input file, what you're going to write to, what you want to write. So IF for input file, the equal sign, and then the path to the ISO image that you downloaded. So for me, that would be slash home, slash kernel Linux, slash download, slash, you know, Ubuntu dash 16 dash 04 dot ISO or whatever, right? And then you put a space okay. and then OF that for output file. So this is where we're going to write the image to the equal sign and then slash dev slash uh, whatever the letter identifier is that we put it up above. Now, the first common mistake I see with people that are using DD for the first time is they specify a partition number. So if I have, let's take dev slash SDC, for example, I might have three partitions on that flash drive and they're going to show up as slash dev SDC one slash dev SDC two slash dev SDC three. Those are my three partitions for my SDC drive, right? And the number one mistake I see yeah. when people don't, when the, when they're, when they say they call me up, they say DD command isn't working or we have a new tech in the shop. He says, I tried to DD this don't work. They're usually specifying the partition number and you don't want to do that because you, an ISO image has multiple partitions often that it's writing. It's writing a boot partition and it's writing the, you know, the actual thing where the install is. And sometimes you have like a data partition, depending on what distro it is. So you, you don't want to specify a partition number. So the output is going to be OF equals, and then just slash dev slash in the example I'm using SDC, but don't do that blindly verify. And then the other thing that I'll always do is I always, you can append two commands in Linux together. So for example, if I wanted to print a list of files and then I wanted to copy file one to file two, I could, I could write the command LS and then a space and then two ampersand. So that's a little and sign shift seven. And if I, the, the shift seven, two of those together ampersands will, will, will execute one command. And then what's ever on the other side of the double ampersands will execute the next command. So if I did LS space ampersand ampersand space, and then CP file one, file two, first it would list all the files. Then it would, after that command completes, then it will copy file one to file two. No, why are you explaining this to me? Because at the end of my DD commands, I will often put two ampersands and then the command sync. And what that does is it flushes all the data out and, and, and make sure that all of it's actually on the drive. Because oftentimes, now you see this, especially with flash media, you'll issue the command You'll press enter and boom, you're, you get your cursor back. You say, how did that thing write 4.6 gigabytes in a half a second? Well, it didn't. It's still working on it. But the command will complete and give you your cursor back, indicating that you could probably rip the thumb drive out. But if you do, your thumb drive doesn't work. So I'll always, append, I'll always put two ampersands and then the sync command after that. Then once that command completes, once you get your cursor back, now you know that drive is actually written. You can pull it out. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Okay, I'm glad. Are you gonna put some of that in the show notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have the whole. Uh, I'll have the whole uh, DD command listed for you in the show notes because that is a, that is a, uh, that is a complicated thing, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to to try and remember. Even uh, say off uh, on air. You think that was our trying to remember it? But um, one other thing too. It's, thank you, chat room. One other thing. Um, block size. Uh, uh, BS equals uh, four meg. A lot of people will throw that in there. It's not absolutely necessary, but we'll have that again in the show notes. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see here. Who do we have here? Jay, Pennsylvania. Hi, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hi. Hi there. Hi, How can we help? Hey, uh, thanks for calling. So, uh, so I'm an Optiplex 790. And it's in UEFI legacy mode. Okay. And I'm trying to boot uh, 
and 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 I'm trying to boot with the um, drive with a drive connected directly to the motherboard via SATA, as well as via a RAID card. Um, that's via PCIe, and when I connect both at the same time, uh, drives on the RAID card as well as drives connected to the SATA on the motherboard, uh, it's a standard Dell um, Dell system, so I wouldn't expect it to do anything special. However, uh, it doesn't boot. It, it it doesn't get past the BIOS. It's still in the BIOS, and there's a black screen after um, after it tries to boot. Okay. However, if I connect either or, it boots. Okay, so walk me through this because I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting a full picture of what we're doing here. So we've got we've got a SATA drive plugged into the the motherboard. Then you have a PCI RAID controller connected to I assume another series of drives. Is that correct? Yeah, three drives, three or four drives. Yeah. Okay, and when you go to boot the machine, it it won't post if you have all of this stuff connected at one time. Uh, well, it loads the BIOS. It gets to that Dell loading right. screen. Oh, okay. Have twelve, whatever. I can press F12. I can do whatever I want. However, after that, just a black screen. In the BIOS, can you see the drives? Can you see the SATA drive? It might not see the uh, it might not see the RAID ones, but. Um, well, I mean, I can't even get to the get to any setup. So. Oh really? I can't see. Yeah, I can't even get to any setup. It's really weird. I haven't. I mean, I mean, I've I've, I've played with uh, servers, PowerEd servers before, and of you know, I mean, I, I, and I tried to, and I couldn't fit in that, so I set up an old desktop server. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said it was a 790? Yeah, 790. Is it the mini tower or the S, uh, the small form factor? It's a small form factor. It is. Um, I t- here's what I would do. I, I guess here's what I would do. I would start by doing a, a BIOS update. There's no reason what you're doing should work. In fact, I have a uh, I have a client that just a month ago we did something very similar. We took one of their old desktops, and it's not their main server, but it's a back it's a free NAS uh, backup server, and um, it, they had actually had a spare RAID card laying around, and so we threw it in there um, to get the drives done. I mean, these days, honestly, if I'm building a machine from scratch, usually, especially if it's a file server, I'm just putting ZFS on it. But um, right. but we, I did exactly what you're doing, and I don't think it was a I don't think it was a 790. I think they were, uh, I think they were 380s. But it, it, it's the same concept. It should work. But I, I know one of the things when I have weird issues like that where they don't post. Have you tried updating the BIOS? Uh, I have, I have not. I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I've tried that. Um, so, um, so before I was, I was booting from a flash drive and then I got started getting flash drive virus because I was running it for like about two years. Uh, so, and I didn't want to run on a flash drive anymore because it kept, you know, because systems kept, because services on the system kept failing. The system didn't power off, but the services kept failing mm-hmm. on the system. So I migrated to internal hard drives to solve all the problems, but then couldn't use up all the ports on my SATA. Uh, on my on my on my raid card, so, sure. Uh, and you know, and then I wanted that native performance of the of the PCIe without clogging up the motherboard SATA. So, like, uh. yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I would say your next step is to to update the BIOS. I've had you'd be amazed. You know, it's funny too. It's interesting that it's uh, that this becomes so ubiquitous because when I was uh, just a couple weeks ago, when I was out for Linux Fest Northwest. We're sitting in the the studio and we we're just talking about how underrated BIOS updates really are. Like. Nobody really ever talks about updating the BIOS on their computer or what the mechanism is for getting BIOS updates, depending on what manufacturer you have. Um, and at the same time, there's all these really cool projects that like, you know, Dell is working with these companies that are, uh, you know, Red Hat that are developing these systems where they can actually push BIOS updates right through the package manager. So all these really cool innovation are happening around BIOS and it turns out like updating your BIOS can really fix a lot of problems and yet we don't ever really talk about it and and, it, and then it's interesting that that question would come up but I would bet you I'll give you an 80% chance updating your BIOS and you just the problem just na- just goes away and if it doesn't call me back and let me know because I'd, I'd really like to uh, I'd really like to, to work through that and see if we can figure out what's going on uh, Jay is calling Pennsylvania hi Jay welcome to the Ask Noah show Hello, I think I got on. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I clicked on the wrong button there. I'm sorry. Uh, Blue Zero is calling from uh, the chat room. <laughs> That's an interesting way to do it. Hi, Blue. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. Uh, I've got a little problems besides uh, my clients wants me to be doing Skype. I mean, not Skype, uh, 
I'm thinking stink thing, but uh, I'm trying Dropbox. That's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I set up stink thing to where? How can I sync it up where I can get to the clients and mine all together? I cannot think of the steps. Let me ask you this. Are you are you absolutely married to sync thing as a solution or are you just looking for file synchronization? Uh file sync would be uh- I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I'm asking, Blue. I'm asking because a couple of weeks ago on the Ask Noah show, we talked about C file, and I gave it a I gave it a pretty good review. I thought anyway, um, and uh, what I have found since that time, having used it not only now personally, but we've actually we rented a a server for AltaSpeed, and we're actually using it company wide now. Um, whatever I whatever however good of a review I gave it before, it's twice that good now. Um, as time has gone on, I have come to love C file even more and I have had a chance to torture test it even more. I went to the lake blue. I was out at the lake and I had almost no internet. I had like just a meg up and and two megs down and I was still able to, uh, to, to let C file do its thing and, and move files around. So my suggestion to you is, um, take a look at C file. Yeah. I, and, and see if that wouldn't work for you. You said you're coming from Dropbox. Yeah, I'm trying to go all open source for my company. So, so I couldn't, for the life of me, could I could not think of C file. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I tell you what. That that's my suggestion to you. Is take take a look at C file. In fact, I'll do you one better. I'm going to put you back on hold. You stay there. Sarah will pick up and get your particulars from you. And uh, one of the things that we were running was we were running a promo a couple of weeks ago where we said that we would. Um, I would assign an, uh, one of our uh, server technicians to set up C file for a select number of people. And a couple of people have taken that offer up and uh, a couple of you guys haven't actually gotten back to us. We've opened a ticket up for you and we'll address that a little bit later towards the bottom of the hour because I want to get to our next guest. But um, if you hang on the line, Sarah will get your particulars and she will, uh, and we'll get in touch with you and I will, I'll have one of our technicians uh, set that up for free. You just provide us with a server or a, you know, a virtual instance from DigitalOcean or something like that. And we will get it set up. Now, this is going to be the first call-in guest we've ever had on the Ask Noah show, and it couldn't be a better one um, because this is a guy who has really helped the Ask Noah show get started. Um, Michael Tonell is the owner and operator of Visuex, the visual excellence company that d- does web design, graphic design. He actually designed and implemented the Ask Noah dashboard and also all of the graphics that you see on the screen. Um with the exception of the actual logo itself, all of that and the movement and stuff was all done by Michael Tunnell. Michael's joining us today. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, do you? Hey, great to have you. So I understand that uh, Michael is a longtime KDE user and uh, actually is a KDE Neon user. And I understand that you guys in the KDE world have been making some big strides lately. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the Plasma 5.10 release was just last week's uh, last Tuesday, and uh, a lot of cool things has come out. And one of the things I use Neon for is because um, the within like an hour or two of the Plasma 5.10 release, Neon gets the update. That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit about what has. Tell me so you so for those of that don't know. KDE is a desktop environment. Usually it's imp- it's combined with a base operating system that that kind of gives you the the distro so to speak. KDE Neon is kind of an interesting animal because it's the KDE desktop environment paired with the Ubuntu underpinnings, but it's not full on Ubuntu, it's just kind of the Ubuntu base. Is that I kind of have that right? Yeah, and technically it's not even a really a distro. They they decided to not call it a distro because they don't handle anything to do with Ubuntu's core. So essentially Neon is Ubuntu as it is with Plasma and the KDE stack on top of it. So they the Neon team only handles all the KDE stuff, so there's a bunch of KDE applications like Kden Live and things like that that get updated, but mm-hmm. and they're handled by the Neon team. But all the updates, like security features and things like that, is controlled by Canonical and Ubuntu. So tell me some of the new things that have come out in KDE. Well, one of the coolest things so far is the um, 
I think it's it's really cool. Is you can customize your boot screen, and it's kind of like people might be thinking, why would you want to do that? And it's just a nice polish that you can do. So when someone sees your computer, you're, even when you're booting up, it's customized to however you want it to be, not just wallpaper, but even your boot screen. You know, that seems and like... And there's some cool... No, go ahead. Okay. I was just saying, there's also some cool stuff that, that are more uh, user workflow specific. Like there's this new thing called spring loading, uh, which allows you to just move files over like a folder on your desktop and a, little, a, a temporary window will pop up and you just drop files there. And that way you can move files into a folder or into multiple subfolders without ever opening your file manager directly from the desktop. That's that's absolutely that's that's awesome. The uh, the KDE desktop is something that has intrigued me and it's been more on my radar lately because I have been using GNOME more and uh, and finding some of the pain points in GNOME. And so actually just last week I was talking to Rakai and and Chris and they were saying, "No, you should really give KDE a shot." And when I started to think about what I would do, um the main reason I was on Entergos was because uh, it had, you know, it was, it was just a really easy, simple way for me to get stock GNOME and, and then play with it. But I think if I was going to look at a KDE distro, I'd probably look at something, uh, you, uh, you know, exactly like what KDE Neon is doing. And uh, do you think that would be a good choice for somebody like me who just wants to basically get work done? Yeah, absolutely. Well, KDE Neon and Kubuntu have their pros and both pros and cons. If you are a new user to to Linux in general and you want to have applications that are set for you and things that are uh, set up for you in a more you know, easy-to-jump-in way, then that's Kubuntu. But KDE Neon is for people who want to have a minimal install and then customize it from there. So like with, with Neon, you get a, a, an image viewer, a browser, the KDE stack of system settings and stuff like that, but that's pretty much it. You don't get an office suite or any kind of thing, like any you know, custom like media players, you do get VLC, but it's uh, um, not the best in my opinion, but that doesn't, that doesn't matter. So I would say KDE Neon is something that for you would be perfect, uh, but it's not best for everyone. So I just wanted to like clarify that some people, Kubuntu is good for them. And for me personally, I think Neon is uh, the most interesting and has the most potential for anyone who's looking in for Plasma and has at least a little bit of experience with Linux. Now, Early on, when Ubuntu announced, when Canonical announced that Ubuntu was going to f- uh, fall away from Unity and go to GNOME, you actually made a very compelling argument that they should have gone to KDE, and we were going to have you on the program to talk about it that week. And then we had a, a you know an issue with our phone system. Would you care to talk about that now? Absolutely. Um, so technically, what I said was not really that they should go to Plasma. I, I was wanting them to not abandon Unity because I like the Unity workflow and I like the the innovations that they did with like the HUD and all, all of the, the screen real estate savings stuff, stuff they did. And a lot of the ideas that were made in Unity were actually created in Plasma by the community. Because they did, they did a lot of cool things that the, the Plasma community was like, well, we want to continue that, stuff, that, that on our platform. And it was just, it's a good opportunity, I thought, for Canonical to, instead of abandoning Unity, they could take the Plasma platform and create a Unity-like environment based on a foundation of Plasma. Okay, well that that kind of makes sense. I guess that I guess that uh, I guess I I misrepresented I misrepresented you on the program then the first time, but uh, but that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's great. I'm glad to see that the KDE. Well, I, I good to, to be to be fair. I did actually name my video with clickbait, so it didn't. <laughs> Yeah, and he's but got you 41,000 views, so it seems like you did something right. <laughs> it's, it's now at 70,000. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, yeah, but the, 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 the idea was more, uh, if, you, if you just took, if Canonical jumped on to Unity on Plasma, they could do some amazing things with it. Uh, Plasma by itself is not necessarily perfect for everyone, and I wouldn't say that Unity on Plasma would be either. But it could ha- it could go so much farther because the the few things that people disliked about Unity was the lack of customization. Sure. If you have Unity on top of Plasma, you can do anything you want. And and personally, I'd probably even use Unity if it was built on Plasma. 
Yeah, and the, the, the limitation of how much I can control is what stopped me from using it in the first place. Yeah, and the thing is, what's always kept me off of uh, what's always kept me off of Katie in the past was there was always something else that I liked better, and slowly but surely, there are changes being made that that are that are that are are dwindling that away. And I I played with uh, with Katie Neon just a little bit, and I I've been really stoked about it. And I, we'll see what happens. Now is not the best time for me to m- be making a, a a distro change, but. Um, you know, definitely in the next few weeks, I might have to take another look at it. Michael, well, thank- Entergos does have a KDE version. Yeah, I know. The thing is, I have a lot of issues with Entergos, though. Like, I I have had, well, I guess that's not necessarily true. I have issues that I attribute to Entergos, but I guess a lot of them are, are probably GNOME-specific. Maybe I should give KDE on Entergos a try. Yeah, and just to be pointed out, um, I really do like the GNOME workflow, and Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't necessarily like the Plasma default workflow. So while I am a huge per, proponent of Plasma and I've been using it for years, it, it, it does work like GNOME in my setup. Sure. I call it GNOME. GNOME. That's great. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. I know that you, the video that we were we were referring to earlier, it's a video produced by your channel, Tux Digital, and you've got another one coming out talking more about the changes in KDE. Where can people find that? Uh, you just go to tuxdigital.com, and that's it. Outstanding. Hey, Michael, I got a question for you. This is something I just I came up with at the, the top of my head, but it's, one, it's live radio, and two, it's my show, so I can do it. Um, I got another qu- caller lined up here in the queue that's going to ask a question, I, and I'm pretty sure you and I are going to land on the exact same answer. You want to hang around and answer it with me? Absolutely, sure. Cool. Chris is calling from North Carolina. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Noah. Hi. You're I'm co- doing great. Great. Thanks for calling the Ask Noah Show. Your question for Michael and me. Um, is there a open source invoicing software that you would recommend for small business owners? Michael? Absolutely. Invoice Ninja. You want to talk about it a little bit? Or? Okay. Yeah, Invoice Ninja is fantastic. They have the, they, you can go to invoiceninja.com or invoiceninja.org. The .com is their premium hosted version, which is like $10 a month or something. And they have the, the .org is the open source version where you can host it wherever you want. There are there there is one small caveat which I consider irrelevant to be in general because if you're talking about an invoicing software, you're going to be expecting to get money in. So I think their premium tiny little thing they have is fine. So what they do is they have a white label version for twenty dollars per year, and that's it. You pay twenty dollars a year. And they give you the, the full open source version with complete white labeling, and there's no reference of Invoice Ninja to your client. So uh, the best thing about Invoice Ninja is, one, it's open source, but two, it has uh, in- invoicing, expenses, task management, uh, not the most extensive project management tools, but it's got time tracking in your tasks, so you can like uh, set up each individual client has a task you want to complete. You can track it by the time that you want. And it has integration with um, your bank account. It can import the expenses you do as far as like your person, your business bank account has. Oh, uh, we got we spent this particular thing for this expense, and then it will just import it into the invoice ninja automatically. Uh, I, I could talk for a very long time about how good this is. Yeah, and the, the reason I kept Michael on for the the call was a couple of months ago. Uh, we uh, full disclaimer: we have been using BeanBooks, uh, which is a, a open source accounting software. By um, actually, I don't know if it's open source, but the the code is available on on GitHub. I'm not exactly sure what the license is, but it's put up by System76, and we've been very happy with it. It works very very well, and I've been recommending it to people as long as I've been using it. Well, a couple of months ago, I had recommended it to a gentleman. And he contacted System76 and they said, well, we're not exactly uh, accepting new, uh, taking on new hosted people. The, the code is there. If you want to use it, that's fine. And, you know, Noah's, we know Noah and he's been around, so we we, we keep his stuff active, but um, we're not exactly, uh, you know, taking new people. And so since then, I've, you know, Michael and I had talked about this and I said, you know, if they ever shut the thing down, I have to have something to go to. You know, what should I look at? And Michael had recommended Invoice Ninja to me and I had looked at it and it's it, it has glowing review from me. I think it's a fantastic piece of software. I think it's absolutely outstanding. I just, I think that Michael is better suited to actually talk about what it can do and what it can't do because he's actually using it. And I just plan to use it someday, if that makes any sense. Does that answer your question? Uh, It does. Thank you, guys. 
Perfect. Well, thanks a lot for uh, thanks a lot for calling in, and thank you very much, uh, Michael, for joining us on the air as well as answering a question. That's like I said, it's one of those things that it just kind of came up with that off the top of my head. I was like, ah, oh, just keep them around, and uh, the technical gods are with me. It worked out. Val is calling from Texas. Hi, Val. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Uh, uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling in. How can we help today? Yeah, so uh, long story short, I'm a, I'm a network admin for a, a power utility company uh, where, uh, where I live. And okay. we're actually uh, decommissioning our last HPU Xboxes uh, this week. Wow. Um, and that actually got me thinking about the future of commercial Unix. Um, you know, you don't hear a lot about AAX, HPUX, and then Solaris um, 12 is pretty much uh, a dead product for mm-hmm. uh, from the announcement from uh, Oracle a few months back. So. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get your opinion on what you think about the future of commercial Unix. It seems like Linux is kind of just taking over that um, that that job in the data center. Yeah, it is. The I mean, you've you've got a you've got a lot of market forces working against uh, you know commercial Unix. So first of all, you have the fact that the GPL and the the very nature of Linux allows people to, you know, a lot more freedom. So there's a lot more innovation happening on Linux than there is on commercial Unix. When's the last time you've heard of some revolutionary new feature coming out on commercial Unix? It just it rarely happens. In fact, even not to pick on the BSD guys, but a large majority of their innovation is built upon our innovation. And they just, you know, they, it just, it, 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 it just Linux is where it's happening, you know? And so, you you on the, you have that market constraint. Then you have the market constraint from the opportunity of training. I live in Grand Forks, North Dakota, town of fifty thousand people. There's barely uh, you know enough population here to justify chain restaurants, and yet we have Linux training places. You can go get Linux trained around here. You can't really get trained on Unix. So you get a lot of pl- people, guys that are going to school for this stuff, that are learning about this stuff. And there's, you know, they, they, they go in, they say, I can get some education, I can get some training on this given operating system. Now I'm going to go out into the job. And this is where I have skills and marketable. And of course, the more people you have that are in that market that can administrate a thing that can troubleshoot a thing, the cheaper you can buy their labor because there's more of them. Right. And so then you start looking at it from a cost uh, perspective and you say, well, commercial Unix, there's five guys in the whole country that, you know, I'm making that up, but limited amount of people that can administrate this thing over here. And we got 10 applications a minute coming in to administrate that thing over there. Where are we going to build our stuff? You know, so you have that kind of market constraint working against you. And then you have a lot of really cool projects and companies that are funding things built upon Linux, like Docker and, uh, and, you know, and, and like libvert D and, and, you know, even C file to, to a lesser, far lesser extent. But a lot of these things are happening and they're happening on Linux, and they're not happening on on commercial Unix. So I, does that answer your question? I I, my, my, I guess the to to TLDR it, uh, I think it's going to die. I just I think like most legacy stuff, it's going to take a long time to die. Yeah, I agree. I, I was just wondering how many years you think it's got before it's just completely. Gone. Oh, a while, a long while. The thing is, I still have. We did. We worked on. Um, God, where was that? It was a, oh, I can't say where it was. Uh, we worked on a, a, a place. We'll call it the place. We worked on a place and they had Win, Windows NT infrastructure still in place. You know, this is, you know, 20, 25 year old, uh, you know, equipment and uh, and they still had it in production. So, I mean, it's, it, it's going to take a while before it dies. All right. Uh, so let's go back. I just want to finish up here our conversation about uh, Windows Active Directory. So you've converted all of your directory controllers to Linux, and now you're going to convert all the workstations to Linux. So we have total Linux solution from top to bottom. But it doesn't really make a ton of sense to use imitated Windows solutions when we're all Linux, does it? So what do we do? Enter the free IPA. Free IPA is an integrated security information management solution that combines Linux 389 directory services, MIT, Kerberos, NTB, DNS, DogTag, uh, dog tag system and SSSD. So what does all that gibberish mean? Well, it means that in English, it's the equivalent of Active Directory on Linux. Now, free IPA just takes a few minutes to get set up. And of course, if you host it yourself locally, then you could host it on a VPS of your choice. If, however, you just want to see what the thing looks like, you would just want to get the feel of free IPA, then they actually offer a demo with the web application um, and you can you can do web application with LDAP or you can use Kerberos authentication. Now, obviously, because it's running on the cloud, there may be a performance hit. So they also have a free public instance of the free IPA server. 
obviously the demo server is blown away at the end of every day. So don't like, you know, use it for your production server or anything like that. But once you have the server set up, installing the client is, it's like one command. It's like a yum space install space free IPA dash client. And then I always put attack Y so it doesn't ask me questions because who likes questions? Um, and then you can use IPA-client-install and specify the domain, the username, and the password, and it, it's, it's done. Now that client is enrolled. Unsurprisingly, the folks at the free IPA are smart folks, and so SE, user, uh, SE Linux has integration, user roles are integrated as well, as well as certificates, pseudo, automount, etc. The free IPA folks also offer Docker images. So if you just want to download and get to work rather than spend your day configuring a box, that's an option from you. Now, from a business perspective, the ideal target for free IPA is typically a large organization that is running some purpose-built specific software, such as like um, scientific calculation software, you know, or uh, engineering software, etc. Your Typical small business is using web-based software stuff, and that is going to have its own authentication mechanism most of the time. So workstation security isn't necessarily an issue. It's a web browser conduit with a built-in office suite. That's kind of what you think, and a file browser. That's kind of what you think of these workstations a lot of the time. Um, if you want more information about it, we'll have links for a free IP as well as RASDC in the show notes. And again, open phone lines, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll answer your tech questions or business in tech questions. Let's go back to the phones here. Who do we have? We have uh, Simon, Virginia. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Simon, Wisconsin. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How are you? Hey, pretty good. How can we help today? So I wanted to ask you, so for a long time, the only machines I've had my hands on are machines with a, you know, with a BIOS, but I recently got my hands on a UEFI machine at Linux Fest on West. Mm -hmm. I had to get some out and help to install a Linux distro on it. So I wanted to ask you, for the future, what do you have to keep in mind when installing Linux distros on UEFI machines versus installing them on BIOS machines? Um, not much. Uh, so the first thing I do, and I, this is going to give me a lot of hate mail and I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. The first thing I do is I shut off secure boot because it's a pain. And I, I really think it was invented to solve a problem that never existed to begin with. So I shut secure boot off. Um, then, uh, with UEFI, as long as your distro supports UEFI 99% of the time, Ubuntu is a great example, right? So let's use, mm -hmm. let's use Lubuntu as an example, just because. Just because uh, we plug Lub <laughs> we plug Lubuntu in on a, on a thumb drive, we plug it in, we turn the machine on, and uh, we you know if it's a Dell, we press F12 and look at the boot menu, and you're going to see two options. And the first option is going to say legacy boot options, and it's going to give all of the available drives that have a legacy boot option in them. The second list of options will say UEFI boot options, and it'll give you the list of options that are available with UEFI. Now, in a distro like Lubuntu or Kubuntu or Ubuntu proper, whatever, they all have both UEFI and BIOS right there in the same image. So when you plug the drive in, you're going to see both of those options pop up and you just choose the one you want. Here's why I would always choose UEFI over BIOS boot if you have the option. It is way faster. And I don't mean like way faster is in like a couple of seconds. I mean, is in like a minute and a half boot time versus like five seconds boot time. I mean, it's like insanely faster. It doesn't always matter because you know, if you use your laptop, like I do, I boot the thing up. I use it when I'm done with it. I just close the lid, open it back up. It just goes in and out of standby. I rare, I think since I've gotten my ThinkPad a month ago, maybe I've rebooted it three times, maybe. And that that's probably being generous. For the most part, it just it comes in and out of standby. So um, was there something more specific that you were looking for? Or is it just kind of general recommendation kind of a thing? Well, it's just sort of a general thing. To kind of go back to what you said with faster boot-up times, um, the laptop that I got at Linux Best Northwest, um, the, the only working hard drive in there right now is, well, a hard drive. Yeah. Um, does, that make a, does it still make a difference if, if you're booting with UEFI? I mean, does that really, like I said, does it make a difference? Yeah, I see what you're saying. You're saying as opposed to an SSD? Yeah. I probably would still... Here's I, here's why I would still do UEFI. I would still do UF, UEFI because all everyone that is moving forward is moving forward on the assumption that there are going to be more and more UEFI users and less and less BIOS users. 
In fact, to that end, there are some computers you can buy that don't even have a legacy boot, a BIOS boot option anymore. So if you're not using a distro that supports UEFI, you'd just be, you'd just be you know, hosed. So from that perspective, I would still stick with UEFI simply because that's where the innovation is going to be. But you're right. If you're on a spinning disk, especially if it's a slow spinning disk, it's probably a 30 to 45 second boot time anyway. So you're probably not gaining a whole lot. Does that answer your question? Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for calling in. We really appreciate having you. Chris is calling for Florida. Chris, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Ah, Noah, nice to, nice to talk to you. Pleasure to speak with you. How can we help? Yeah, I had a question about running an Asterix Now server. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, what do you do as far as maintaining and keeping it up to date? Like, how often do you update it? What do you do to update it? Uh, et cetera. Sure. The maintenance schedule that we have on ours here at AltaSpeed is once a month. Once a month, we log into it and we update it. Um, when I say update the server, for those of you who don't know, Asterix now is a appliance-like distro that's built on top of CentOS to run Asterix. And um, inside of the web utility, if you go under admin and then system admin, and little side note, as of the latest version of uh, Asterix, it requires you to register for an account. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. But you have to register for an account to get access to the system administration tool. And you want to do that because it's a very useful tool. It doesn't cost anything, but you just need to register for an account. Okay, back to what I was talking about. So you click on admin, click on system admin, and then... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, It's I think it's admin, then it's packages. Um, I have to look. I think it's admin, system admin, then packages, something like that. But um, I'll have an exact description of how to get to it in the show notes. But once you get there... Uh, there is a check online, which will go out to the internet and see what updates are available. And then th- it's it's weird how it works because first you check online, it tells you all the packages that are available. Then you have to download, you see, click the download button and then you have to press process and it downloads all the packages and then you can click update and press process and then it processes all the packages. And I have had it work a couple of times where I click the download up, uh, I click download, then I click update, and then I click process and it does them all. But oftentimes I have something fail. And if anything ever does fail to update, if you read the error carefully, it usually will just tell you XYZ failed, execute, and then it gives you the command and it'll say execute this from the command line. And then basically what you do is you log into your server with SSH or, you know, if you have it running on a machine, you can walk up to it. Um, and basically you run the, the manual command. And so sometimes I'll have a package. It'll fail to update a package and it'll say, you know, the, the automatic update script failed. X didn't update. So run yum update and then this to uh, to get it to go. I said I update our server once a month. That's the, that's the scheduled maintenance. Anytime I log into the server, if there's an update available, we apply it. So if we're creating an extension or if we're modifying a voice mailbox or resetting a password, whatever it is, anytime we're in the box, box, we're updating it. So it actually gets updated more often than that. It's just that that's the, that's the plan. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, so do you never like just do a yum update? Do you, do you always, do you have to use the ev UI or can you do it from the command line? Um, you can update the packages from the server. That's not a bad idea either. I, we, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know exactly how often we go into the server itself and update the server. Um, because I, usually if I'm doing something, I'm just, I'm bouncing in there to create something. And then I, you know, I bounce over to that update thing and I update the packages within Asterix. Now there's some, I pay people to actually keep the server up to date. So I don't, I don't know exactly how often we I assume it happens once a month as well. And yes, we do run yum update on the server itself. Um, But my understanding is, and I could be wrong about this. uh, My understanding is that the update manager inside of Asterix now updates the packages on the box. So my understanding is, and again, I could be wrong about this. My understanding is that either way you are updating all of the stuff except for the OS specific parts. But then again, the OS specific parts are pared down to just support that appliance. There's no extra stuff installed. Does that make sense to you? Great. Well, thanks a lot for calling in. We really appreciate it. That brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to Rekai, our video editor, Sarah, our call screener, and Ben, our producer. We'll see you back next week. 